Good morning to you. How many of you have ever seen one of these? Uh, usually this is a sign of deep-seated urgency. It, uh, it has driven you from the comforts of your vehicle to the nearest gas station. Uh, if you are handed one of these, things are probably not looking real good right now. Uh, that urgently needed bathroom is almost certainly outside of the building, isn't it? Yeah, you have to walk around the side of the gas station. Uh, the accommodations will, will, will probably be Spartan, uh, neglected, and uh, more than likely adorned with junior high-level artwork and humor. Uh, now, this specific key is only going to turn a specific lock, isn't it? One key will open just the men's room, and one will open just the ladies' room. One key opens only one specific lock. And, and locks are a lot like our passage today. It takes just the right key to open our passage. Any key will not do. And so today we are in 1 Corinthians 7. And 1 Corinthians 7 is often misunderstood because some saints try to use the wrong key to unlock the truths therein. And you find that when you insert that key, if it's the wrong key into the lock, it just doesn't work. The lock won't pop. If you approach 1 Corinthians 7 wrongly, it doesn't make sense. It mangles other Scriptures that say very clear things, and this passage seems to say the opposite. To some saints who use the wrong key on 1 Corinthians 7, this passage becomes a weapon. and It's something we thrust upon others to either try to get our way or to stand above them with a sort of holier-than-thou attitude. Now, other brothers, having been wounded by these wrongly weaponized verses, they stand accused and they are not amused. And so this passage becomes refused saying, you know what, if that's what the Bible teaches, well then, I reject that. But for most of us, most often, most saints, are in neither camp. For most of us, 1 Corinthians 7 is not misused. It is not refused. It is seldom perused. Because it leaves us confused. Because we're using the wrong key to turn the lock of 1 Corinthians 7. And so our sole goal for the next three Sundays is simply this. We want to see that with the right key, 1 Corinthians 7 unlocks. And it's going to unlock some powerful, important truths to you and I. But first, we have to reject the wrong keys. You see, this text is not a treatise on Christian marriage. It does speak to the married and to the Christian who is married. But if I use this text to explain Christian marriage, I'm going to misunderstand Christian marriage. Other passages speak much more clearly, much more specifically, much more pointedly on Christian marriage. Genesis 2 tells us God instituted marriage. It tells us that for most of us, but not all of us, it's not good for man to be alone. 
And so God graciously provides most of us with a helpmeet suitable for us for our specific needs so that we would better achieve God's specific ends in this world. Not only is 1 Corinthians 7 not the Bible's primary teaching on marriage, it's not even the Apostle Paul's primary teaching on marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, he mentions marriage, but the Apostle Paul's primary teaching on marriage would be Ephesians 5, where we're taught about unique God-given roles in marriage and, and how in a Christian marriage God is doing something more than simply uh, uh, fulfilling our needs. He is doing that, but, but he's revealing a, a beautiful picture of a divine mystery of Christ's love for the church. 1 Corinthians 5 is a more fuller New Testament treatment on marriage and Genesis 2 in the Old Testament. So, so no, 1 Corinthians 7 is not the key when we look at Christian marriage. If we put the Christian marriage key in, you're not going to get the lock to pop. So it can't be that. That's not what this passage is speaking about. All right. Well, what about this? Is that what the passage is talking about? It's mentioned in the passage, isn't it? It talks about it clearly at certain points in the passage. And some saints try to make sex the point of 1 Corinthians 7. But if you're trying to build a biblical theology on sexuality, you're going to find that more in the book of Proverbs and specifically in Song of Solomon. So no, 1 Corinthians 7 is not going to be opened with the key of sex. No pot. Alright, so what are the other keys that are mentioned but are not the key? 1 Corinthians 7 is not primarily a treatise on this, is it? Singleness. Singleness is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7. In fact, there's an extended treatment on singleness in the passage. It does speak on singleness, particularly the tremendous kingdom advantages to those God calls to singleness. But that is not the primary point of this passage. If I take the singleness key, it will not open the lock. So that is not where we need to go. Some people say, well, what about those who are about to get married? The betrothed in your old King James, the engaged in your modern translation. What about those who have lost a spouse? The passage speaks on those as well, but we're going to find, just again, nope, that is not the point of the passage. It does speak to the widowed, it does speak to the engaged, but it is not the primary point of the passage. So how do we find the correct key? And the answer is always this. Context, context, context. That's always the answer. What is our passage saying in light of what's around it, in light of the rest of the book, in light of the rest of the Bible? And so the key to 1 Corinthians 7 is understanding that 1 Corinthians 7 is answering one specific question. And it is this. Can only the lonely be holy? That's their question. That's what they're going to start this out in verse 1. 
They're asking the question, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? They're implying, is, is it true that only the lonely can be holy? That's their question. And, and what you see is, you know what? When I put that key in, the text opens up. Only that key will open this text up. If I take any other key, I'm going to mangle this text. And so that is our, our mini-series to unlock 1 Corinthians 7 over these three Sundays. Context, context, context tells us this. Um, remember the structure of our letter. Many weeks ago when we started our series in 1 Corinthians, we had sort of a background overview of the culture and structure of the letter. I don't know if you remember that, but you can go back and look at that online. We talked about how the Apostle Paul spends the first six chapters doing one thing. There's a house group in the Corinthian church that meets at Chloe's house. She has a big house, people meet there, and so there's these problems that are happening in the church in Corinth that Chloe's people, the people from the house church in Corinth, send to Paul and say, we have a unity problem, uh, uh, we, we have uh, concerns about factionalism, it's splitting our church. We have concerns about lawsuits that are tearing apart our testimony in the community. We have concerns about a situation that makes even the pagans blush, and, and, and their tongues wag about our church, and we're doing nothing to address that problem. There were concerns stemming from saints who were caught up with sexual immorality, and, and it was defeating many of them entirely. That was chapter 6. So for six chapters, Paul has been methodically addressing the concerns brought by Chloe's people. But now we're in chapter 7. And from chapter 7 to the rest of the book, chapter 7 is like a hinge in the book of Corinthians. It's going to move from Chloe's people's problems that need to be addressed to the Christians in Corinth, the congregation's questions, what do we do about this or that or the other? Uh, it's going to be all question-driven for all of the rest of our time in Corinthians. Now, you see this shift in our book very clearly. If you look at our text today, which we're going to read in a moment, just look at the first verse. He says, now concerning the matters, what? About which you wrote. He's saying, I'm stopping everything I've said before, which is the problems Chloe's people have addressed, and we're going to stop now, and we're going to talk about the stuff that you have questions on, church. The Corinthian church had questions, and they wrote to the Apostle Paul, who's not only an apostle, he's the apostle of the Gentiles, of the Gentile city, and he was the founder of this church. They said, we want some help. Help us iron out where we're having uh, some questions and concerns theologically. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here's the first matter. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Then in chapter 8, there's another question. And, and he says, uh, you know, well, Paul, what do we do about food sacrifice to idols? And we'll talk about that in later sermons, why that was such a problem for them and, and what the analogy be, would be for us today. Notice in chapter 8 begins with, now concerning food offered to idols. Another question, another answer from the Scriptures. Uh, in chapter 12, there's another question from the congregation. Paul, we're having worship wars over here. Uh, people like this spiritual gift, their spiritual gift, and they don't really like that person's spiritual gift, and they're running over each other and running roughshod, and the church has become chaos instead of worship. What do we do? So chapter 12 begins with, now concerning spiritual gifts. And he talks about that for several chapters. And later, the Corinthians asked, well, what do we do about the famine that's happening in Jerusalem and our brothers there that are suffering? How are we to help those brothers? And so Paul writes, now concerning the collection 
for the saints in Jerusalem. Finally, the Corinthians go, you know, our church is pretty much a mess. And if you've read the letter, you go, yes. And they kind of ask, Will you, or, would you or Apollos come back and teach us and help us iron out all these, navigate all these tricky challenges? And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 12, now concerning, our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you and the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So it's critical to understanding the book of Corinthians that we understand that chapter 7 marks a hinge, a bridge, a changing content for the rest of the book. It's a shift from the problems in the church that Chloe's people said this is happening to now here are questions from the congregation, what do we do about X? And the first thing they want to know about X is dealing with the subject of intimacy. Now concerning about the matter about which you wrote, Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you read this in the Greek, what they're saying is literally this. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that was a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Some saints in the church in Corinth were saying sex is bad. They argued, look at all this muck and this yuck here in Corinth, Paul. All this prostitution and promiscuity and adultery and homosexuality all around us. We've talked about that at length. To people who got saved out of that environment, you can see how they might wrongly come to the conclusion that actually sex itself is bad. That that's our problem. Hence, they adopted a slogan. It's good for man not to touch a woman. That's pretty much the polar opposite to the question in chapter 6, wasn't it? In chapter 6, they said food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Obviously, if I have these sexual appetites, I should satiate them. There's a certain kind of Christian that, that was going to be twisting the Scriptures to say I can do whatever I want. And then there's these other saints who are like super hypersensitive and say you can't even do the things God permits. Right? You follow? Notice how Satan twists the truths of Christian liberty in chapter 6 into sinful carnality. And here in chapter 7, Satan twists holiness into a kind of asceticism that is not actually found in the Bible. You see, if Satan can't defeat the church with hypersexuality, he's happy to try to defeat it with hyperspirituality. But his goal is to always defeat the church. And so he tempted some saints in chapter 6 to, to unbiblical sexual promiscuity. And then in chapter 7, other brothers were tricked into unbiblical sexual repression, sloganeering, it's good not even to touch a woman. Not even your wife. So the Corinthian Christians were very confused. To those who thought the solution to the sexual pollution around them was the utter rejection of, of, of procreation, Satan was having a field day in their marriages. In our text, we have married Christians who were seeking to get divorced because it seemed more spiritual to be single. We have some who were married to other believers who were saying, well, let's be married, but let's just be married spiritually, not conjugally. Walking with me, euphemisms, little ears. Okay, uh, their idea was let's abstain so somehow we remain clean. Other saints were, uh, whose spouses were not yet believers. They were married to someone who hasn't yet come to Christ. They, were, uh, uh, they came to Christ and their spouse had not. 
And they were wondering, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul, does my marriage with an unbeliever make me unclean? Especially when I engage in marital intimacy. Do I become unholy in, in that endeavor? But sexless marriages were not what God intended for any marriage. When he sanctioned a special one flesh relationship, the two shall become one flesh. Only within marriage. Satan knows that such an unbiblical arrangement where you have spouses who, who say, no, we're, we're going we're to not do that at all, going to lead to deep resentments among those spouses, going to lead to great potential for temptation among those spouses. And, and remember these newly saved saints uh, with these uh, unsaved uh, spouses who, who are asking, are my children illegitimate in the eyes of the Lord because uh, we're, we're, I'm a believer and they're not a believer. Sh- should I leave my unbelieving spouse uh, so that the negative influence of their paganism doesn't rub off on my kids? Uh, what if my unsaved spouse doesn't want to be married to me anymore now that I'm a Christian? You see, I now belong to Jesus. And so there's this third person in our marriage that didn't used to be there. And he's perfect and wonderful. <laughs> and my spouse isn't. <laughs> And my spouse feels like that's kind of an unfair trade. Like, who, who have you smuggled in to our marriage? And so they want out. And is it okay to let them out if an unbeliever wants out? Or is that not okay? Get an idea of the questions going to the congregation? Now, if you were not yet married, you wondered, must I remain single in order to be holy? Like, if we're not supposed to even touch a, 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 then maybe I just shouldn't even try to get married. And In which case, it seems like a lot of my hopes and dreams and even desires are, are being sort of turned off. Is that, is that something I need to do? If you were engaged and you were about to be married, you were betrothed, the old uh, King James would say, should we break this off and not get married? In light of the fact that maybe Christians shouldn't do that. If you were widowed, and remember the widows, their main source, most of the widows were female. And there were very few jobs available to females. And so if you didn't have sons to, to, to provide for you, uh, the, base, the best way to provide for yourself was to get married again. And they were wondering, but am I allowed to get married? Uh, because, you know, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. Maybe it's better I just remain single and be super holy, but then how am I going to eat? So we go back to this question. This is the key. The question is this. Can only the lonely... Be truly holy in the eyes of God? It's a really good question. Now, you might go, well, that's a dumb question. We know the answer. Yeah, because we have 1 Corinthians 7. They didn't. So Satan was hammering them. The question can be stated this way. Is celibacy the only way to true intimacy with the Almighty? And some saints, given the wild excesses of their hypersexualized culture in Corinth, thought, yeah, that sounds about right to me. And we still have saints today that are confused on this. Did you know that? There are people who say, I'm married to God. You lesser people can marry each other. I'm more spiritual. They're more religious, aren't they? Some Christians think God gave us sex and marriage only for procreation. And certainly not for recreation. So let's engage in this activity as little as possible to produce little people. And let's kind of make sure no one's having any fun along the way. You've met those Christians, right? They're super happily married. So, these kind of deceived saints sadly subsist in self 
created deserts where God has led them to an oasis. So if you turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 7, let's answer these questions. The chief question, can only the lonely be holy? 1 Corinthians 7 is on page 1214 in the Blue Pew Bibles. And as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn our hearts to the Lord of that Word in prayer before we share. Lord Jesus, uh, boy, we got out of 1 Corinthians 6 and we thought we got away. And now we're in 1 Corinthians 7 and there's more sensitive subjects. But they are true subjects. And they're subjects that Satan continues to cause field days. And there's resentments and, and hurts and confusion. Some people feel like you love them less because you have not given them a helpmeet. Some people feel like they won't be completed until they have a helpmeet, which is interesting because Jesus was perfect and yet he was single. At the same time, it's not good for man to be alone. It's generally true. And you tell us to, to marry a believer. And, and then some of us are in contexts where that's not the case. And uh, what do we do in those contexts? Do we give up? Do we give away? Do we... Lord, your word has answers. We don't need to be led by emotion or uh, intuition. We ought to be led by the word of the Lord. Your spirit is a sword and it cuts. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, you would help us to shape us, to mold us, to think biblically about our singleness, our widowhood, our, our marriages, and that uh, we would be able to then give godly counsel to others and great encouragement instead of resentment and bitterness and brokenness and they have something that I don't and I wish I had what they had and if I had it, well, then I could be happy. That's a lie from the devil because you tell us to be content in all circumstances and you ordain our circumstances. So I do pray, Lord, over these three Sundays we would understand these truths, but we would also apply them. And that they would be a balm of Gilead where the enemy has tried to put a splinter and an infection that's causing a defection and deflection of the joy we'd otherwise have in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Forty verses today. You ready? Here we go. 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Notice it's one of each, not many. Uh, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, euphemism, and, uh, and likewise the wife her husband. Doesn't sound like sexless marriages. Uh, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other. And he's speaking of marital intimacy except perhaps by agreement, both of you have to agree to it, for a limited time, that is, even if you agree, you need to make sure it's not protracted, and for a spiritual purpose, that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then, be sure to come back together again, that is, conjugally, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all people were as myself. Paul was single. But each one has his own gift from God. Singleness is apparently a gift. One of those kind and one of another kind of gift, that is. To the unmarried and the widowed, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they, they should marry. That's fine. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Particularly if you live in Corinth. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. 
You see, the Lord spoke on this issue. It's not that his words mean less than the Lord's words. It's that the Lord hadn't spoken on some of these other subjects, but he had spoken on this. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from the husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that is, not that this has less weight, but rather that the Lord didn't speak in this area. To the rest I say that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, well, let it be so. If they want out, the unbeliever wants out, you can let them out. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if there's going to be just conflict, the other person wants out, you can give them peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So for those who are saying, well, if I leave this, how will they know the gospel? Well, you don't know that that's going to happen either way. And for those who are saying, uh, you know, I want out, well, maybe you staying might be the way they come to Christ. That's, you can read that either way. It's not really clear what he's saying, isn't it? Verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. Uh-oh, so the Lord's deciding who's widowed and who's married and who's married to who. Huh, I thought you guys just made a bad mistake when you were 18 and now you're going to make a better one because you found someone else. doesn't seem to say that, does it? Verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches, not just in messed up places like Corinth, but everywhere. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him seek not to remove the circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God is what counts. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. You were called into the kingdom a certain way. Keep walking in that way unless God alters it. Were you a bondservant when called? That is, were you a slave? Uh, do not be concerned about it. Now, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who call, was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man in the Lord. So that is, even though you may be a slave in society, you're a free man before God. Likewise, he who was free when he's called is a slave to Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, the engaged, I have no command from the Lord because he didn't say anything on this issue. But I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. He's an apostle and he's writing scripture. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. You met any married people? Anybody get an amen to that? Very quietly for those other people you know, not your spouse. Your spouse is awesome. But those other couples you've heard of that have troubles because they're married. I will spare you of that. And he's saying, look, you know, everybody thinks being married is going to solve everything. No, it's going to create new challenges. I want to spare you some of those challenges. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. He's looking at, you know, the, the season of bringing in people to Christ to, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. That is, don't be so obsessed with the now, the now is going away. Be obsessed with the eternal. And I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man, excuse me, the, the married man, yeah, excuse me, the unmarried man 
is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That is, his number one priority can be Jesus because he doesn't have a spouse and kids that also have to be high priorities. Verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. That's just a fact, right? You've got other people you're now responsible for. You've made a covenant that you're going to provide for them. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. It wasn't saying you couldn't get married. But to promote good order and secure your undivided attention to the Lord. The first thing that's first is keep the Lord first, and these other things will make sense. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. Let him marry, it's no sin. It's not wrong to get married. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains will do even better. They're both okay. They both have advantages. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So if you're a widow... You're no longer married because he's passed away. You're free from the covenant of marriage because that only lasts for as long as until death do us part. If you want to get married again, you can. You just have to marry a believer. You have to marry in the, in the Lord. You don't have to marry, but if you want to marry, you can. You just have to marry another believer. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that too, I too have the Spirit of God. It's a very gentle way of him answering their questions uh, because they often were very puffed up in their questions. Now, time is only going to permit us today to handle one aspect of this passage, and it's only going to allow us to handle one portion of that, okay? So we're going to answer the question just for the marrieds, and just some of the questions for the marrieds, can only the lonely be holy? So in your outlines, look at for the marrieds, point one, for the marrieds, point A. God considers the marriage bed holy, and it is a God-given source of special pleasure between a husband and wife. I'm going to say that again. God considers the marriage bed to be holy, and it is a God-given source of special pleasure between a husband and a wife. The Corinthians had this slogan, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul agrees that celibacy is good, and he disagrees that it's a universal good. Because the Corinthians were making it, at least the ones in chapter 7, a universal good. That is, if God gifts you with the gift of singleness, then that is very good for you. And use that to the glory of God. But for most of us, Genesis 2 is true, it's not good for man to be alone. And so God will provide for most of us, most of the time, a helpmeet suitable for our needs. One reason God provides a helpmeet, not the only reason, but one reason, is verse 2. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You see, within the covenant of marriage that people do right on this stage, many of you have done this year, it's been the year of the wedding at Calvary Church, that's great. Within the covenant of marriage, God gifts us with a special provision of a special person to whom we're to enjoy a special measure of intimacy, ecstasy, and unity. The two become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, God puts it like this, therefore man shall leave his father and mother. His formerly most intimate relationship is going to shift to a new and even more intimate relationship. He's going to hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. So sex between a husband and wife is not dirty. It is not a mere expediency. 
It is a gracious gift from our gracious God who designed both marriage and sex. Our Creator made us a certain way. And those of you that have taken basic uh, biology, you understand how God has graciously, densely packed our nerve endings in just the right places to make marital intimacy particularly powerful and enjoyable. It's just a fact, isn't it? You have more nerve endings in certain parts of your body than others. Particularly true when it comes to reproduction. God orchestrated all the biochemical and neurological and hormonal uh, reactions and interactions we talked about last week uh, to occur between a husband and a wife during sexual intimacy as a powerful bonding agent, the two becoming one. Why? So it would increase our love for each other in this unique, God-given, one-flesh relationship. Now, what God meant for good, want to guess? Satan intends for evil. What God has wired, Satan wants to go haywire. Our society has gone a little haywire when it's come to sex, amen? I want you to turn for a second to one verse in the Bible. It's Hebrews 13.4. It's on page 1286. Hebrews 13.4. You're like, well, you put that on the screen. You never have me turn anywhere when I put it on the screen. Yeah, because I want you to mark it in your Bible. (laughs) Because you live in Corinth. It's a good verse to know. Hebrews 13.4, let the marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled. So marriage is a good thing, it's a God thing, it should be honored by all, it shouldn't be cheapened, it shouldn't be turned into things it's not, made into things that God hasn't made it, uh, denigrated so it's not necessary, it is necessary, let it be held in honor, and here's the second piece, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So marriage is a good gift. The marriage bed, which is a biblical euphemism for the special sexual relationship God has given as part and parcel within the gift of marriage, well, that's a good thing. That's a powerful thing. But it is something we need to be careful with. So God wisely warns, let the marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So there's a concern there from the Lord. So some... Saints in Corinth were saved out of this seething cauldron of sexual iniquity. And so they wrongly threw the baby out with the biblical bathwater, didn't they? They thought, since sexual immorality was bad, sex itself must be bad too. The Bible's answer is no, not at all. The same God who gives us 1 Corinthians 7 is the same God who gives us Song of Solomon 7. Go home and read Song of Solomon 7 and see if you can come in any way to an exegetical conclusion that intimacy in the marriage bed is problematic in the eyes of God. Nope, it's not. So, what you're going to see is that God is not afraid, ashamed of sexual intimacy within the context of marriage. God gave us sexual intimacy to be enjoyed within the context of the covenant of marriage. Because sexual intimacy is supposed to bond us, and bind us in in a good way. You become close to that person, physiologically, emotionally, in all kinds of ways. But that's also, friend, the flip side of that coin. The flip side of that coin, the dark side of that coin, is that sexual promiscuity becomes so painful because it puts us in bondage and blinds us. What God intended to, to bond us and bind us can put us in bondage and blind us how you use it, right? So I want you to turn to Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5. 
starting at verse 15. Proverbs 5.15 is roughly the middle of your Bible. It's on page 673 of the Blue Pew Bible. And let's look at a little bit of God's wisdom from Proverbs 5. As we answer the question, can only the lonely be holy? That's the key to our passage. Proverbs 5 is unmistakably clear, even if it is gentle and full of euphemism. Drink water from your own cistern. That meant that you have a place that you're allowed to to get water. (laughs) It was your well. Flowing water from your own well. There's an abundance. God has given you this. Go use it. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water flowing down the street, let them be for yourself alone. That is, your spouse, for yourself alone, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, It speaks more. Be intoxicated with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of great folly, he is led astray. You see, in light of the fact that God considers the marriage bed holy, and it is a God-given source of special pleasure between a husband and wife, God's word goes on to say, let her be today to the married. Let her be as this. In the decision to get married, let her be, my friend. In the decision to get married, you are deciding to give your spouse their God-given conjugal rights. When you make the decision, yeah, we're getting married, you're making that decision at the same time. Look again at verse 3. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife for her husband. Now, this was absolutely revolutionary in first century society. In the first century, the man was all that mattered in these matters. He called all the shots. The man was the one who was supposed to be satiated, but God's word says, hey, not true for the Christian. For the Christian, both of you need this bonding. Both of you ought to be fulfilled in this act of intimacy. Both of you have a right to this because you covenanted to become one flesh. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife her husband. Now when you're single, my friend, your body is yours and the Lord's. But when you are married, you have covenanted to share each other. You're not to deny each other, the Bible says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. If you prefer celibacy, the Bible says stay single. There's the answer. But if you decide to get married, then you are deciding to have intimacy with the person that you're covenanting to be with. You know what that means? I want you to listen really clearly because the church gets this wrong. It means sex is never a weapon in a marriage. It isn't something we hold back until we get what we want. It isn't something we give out when we've gotten what we want. Did you know much harm is caused in marriages? Even so-called Christian marriages? When God's powerful tools for bonding is weaponized in the marriage and rationed so that one spouse deliberately, defiantly, and repeatedly does it their own way instead of God's way. To the detriment of the other person covenanted to be together. Did you know 
Such a weapon may be the way unsaved folks behave in their marriages, but Scripture says it's not the way God's people should behave in our marriages. The Bible's very practical, isn't it? Funny we never get to this passage. You know why? Because it's really uncomfortable standing on my side of the pulpit today. Okay, so uh, that brings us to point C. Remember, I didn't write this book, I just preach it. It's totally true, it's not always totally easy. Brings us to point C. Our bodies are not our own. They're first the Lord's, and secondarily, if we choose to get married, they're our spouse's. Who's last in that? You are. We're first the Lord's, and then secondarily, our spouse's. See that in the scripture here. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That's not misogyny, because the verse goes on and says, likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So flip back for just a moment to the previous chapter. Flip back to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 13. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for who? But for the Lord! and the Lord for our bodies. You see, Jesus is Lord over the Christian's body. Jesus gets priority over everything in our life and in our body. We are His holy temple. And so, uh, the marriage bed between a husband and wife is holy. And so we ought to love each other, not just with our words, but also with our bodies. And when we decide to get married, we simultaneously decide to voluntarily offer our bodies to meet the needs of our spouses. We covenant with God to be in a one-flesh relationship with our spouses, therefore our bodies are no longer just ours, they are the Lord's first and our spouses. Second, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I want to say this really quickly. This is not intended to be abusive. Maybe we should say that together. This is not intended to be abusive. A selfish spouse can deny their spouse, or a selfish spouse can make harsh demands of their spouse in this area. You following? Two ways to fall off the horse. Our activities ought to foster intimacy, not shame, pain, or resentment. Our acts of love should cause us to have deeper love for one another, not a remorse that leads to isolation, resentment, and rejection. Sex ought to bond a husband and wife together. It ought to be something we look forward to and we cherish. It's intended for our pleasure to foster deeper intimacy between the husband and the wife in a relationship that's unparalleled in the human experience by God's good design. Now, what happens if you take your oasis? turned into a desert. God says bad things happen. And he's right, isn't he? If we believe we know more than God on this issue and we weaponize sex in our marriage, understand God can't be mocked. You're going to reap what you sow. Your desire to do things differently than God's way is going to create problems that God didn't design and you're going to have to figure out how to get past them. Oasises that become deserts make it easier for Satan to encourage your spouse to sinfully consider drinking from another cistern to quench their thirst. Which brings us to letter D. Letter D. God intends for the marriage bed to be a powerful assistant 
in our holiness. God intends for the marriage bed to be a powerful assistance in our holiness in a world full of sexual brokenness. God knows you live in a world that Satan is messing up how we think about intimacy. And so he's created a plan for that intimacy to be wonderful and beautiful and helpful and healthy and great. Verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband in most cases, unless you have the gift of singleness. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, there's an old adage when it comes to budgeting. Never go to the grocery store hungry. Why? Because if you go to the grocery store after you've had a fine meal, you will happily purchase vegetables and staples. But if you go to the grocery store hungry, you're coming home with Doritos and donuts, aren't you? Right? You might not even make it home. You're going to have a Dorito-coated, powdered finger drive home. When we walk through that grocery store full, we walk without fear as we walk down the candy bar aisle. They put it right there. You've been looking at food the whole time. Break now. Break now. Here's a $3.30 product. Bag news. Whatever you like. The impulse purchases on the disgrace racks scream out to shoppers who hunger in a way that shoppers who are full can pass by without even a second glance. Friends, we live in a world of sexual brokenness, don't we? We are bombarded with advertisements full of innuendo. All the corruption in ancient Corinth is available in our phone that's in your pocket. God understands this. So the saints in Corinth who had 1,000 beauties of Aphrodite beckon nightly to temple prostitution. And if that wasn't your, your game, you had the, the temple of Apollo, and they had all these fit male prostitutes that would take all comers. God said because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman his own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, and then be sure to come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, what do these people in chapter 7 think? They thought they were super holy. He said, yeah, not when you're super thirsty. Christian, God intends for the marriage bed to be a powerful assistance towards our holiness in a world of sexual brokenness. So what does that mean practically? You and I are speaking euphemistically. We've been talking about hunger in grocery stores. The Bible's not quite so blushing. It gets specific and quick, and that brings us to point E on our outlines. It's our last sub-point for today, mercifully, if you're squirming as am I. For the married, point E is this. Husbands and wives are not to deprive each other of this gift unless briefly, by mutual consent, and for a God-honoring purpose. Like, you are supposed to have a one-flesh relationship with your spouse. 
Husbands and wives are not to deprive each other of the gift of sex unless it is briefly by mutual consent and for a God-honoring purpose. That's clearly what this verse teaches. Verse 5 couldn't get much clearer on this point. Do not deprive one another, and he's speaking about in the area of sexual intimacy, except perhaps, that is maybe, not always, but maybe, by agreement, both of you agree, for a limited time, not like the my pillow offer that's always offering you a limited time and it's never gone away, but a limited time that's actually very limited. Okay, that's a scam. Uh, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It has a spiritual kingdom-building purpose. And then, hey, you got to come back together again in that way, so Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I've been in ministry for 25 years. I know I don't look any younger than 94, but I've been a minister for 25 years. And in 25 years, I've counseled a lot of couples in marriage counseling. I've coupled, uh, counseled couples who've been married a very long time. I've counseled couples who've been married a very short time, but they're having trouble in their marriage. I've counseled couples from different uh, countries, different continents, and different cultures. But there is a familiar rejoinder when couples are having issues. Often, fights in the front room are also connected to the bedroom. That's a fact, Jack. Now, in 25 years of ministry, when I've had couples that have had problems regarding marital intimacy, never once have I had a couple say, Pastor, our problem is we are praying so much together that this just never happens. That has happened never times in 25 years of ministry. Never times. And yet, so here is the word of God to us. That doesn't even fit our category of possibility. He's having to tell them that. God's word to us, do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time, by agreement, so that you, do not devote, so that you devote yourself to a spiritual purpose, to prayer, but then come again together so Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Husbands and wives are not to deprive each other of this gift except briefly, by mutual consent, and for a God-honoring purpose. And that's it. Otherwise, you're supposed to be one flesh. Let's unpack that for just a moment. God's plan for a couple who is physically able, not everybody's physically able, it's not speaking to that issue, it's speaking to those that this intimacy is available, it's saying, well, then you need to do it regularly. You need to have this be part of your life regularly. If, if you're choosing to be married, you're choosing to do this in such a way that it brings you together. If you decide you want to take a break from this, you both need to decide that, not one of you decides it unilaterally. It can't be by personal fiat. This is only by mutual consent. And it ought to have a God-honoring purpose. Are you fasting so that you could do something for the kingdom of God you wouldn't otherwise have time to do? Now, sometimes somebody says, well, what about, you know, my... My husband's deployed, or my, my wife goes away on business, and so geography makes intimacy challenging. Well, there used to be an expression to those who went off to war. It was keep the home fires burning. And that meant you keep the house running. But I'm going to use that analogy, keep the home fires burning, because, friends, you need to understand, our marriages are like a campfire. We either tend to it, and it will provide us with warmth and joy, or we neglect our marriages, and that fire will start to peter out, and we'll be left cold and in the dark. 
where God intended you to be warm and in the light. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord, there is no subject under the human condition which we needed instruction, which you left us deficient. Often our problems in life are because we're ignorant of the Word of God, not because we're bereft of truth from the living God. You speak intimately into our existence the fact that we are sinners and we need a Savior. The fact that when sinners sin against each other, it tends to evoke more sins from the other. Sinners, when sinned against, tend to respond sinfully. Hurt people, hurt people. Brokenness is like a chain reaction that gets worse and worse and farther and deeper. But grace is the only thing that stops the brokenness. Love covers a multitude of sin. You took our pain on the cross that by your stripes we would be healed. Lord, I pray for the marrieds that over these three Sundays we would carefully assess your word to us in this and make whatever adjustments that are necessary, that we wouldn't deprive one another, but we also wouldn't push and prompt in ways that lead us away from unity and towards painfulness and and resentment. I pray, Lord, for the singles over these several weeks that they would soberly assess, am I waiting for the one God has for me? Then may they not settle for whatever passes by until then. Or have you given me this gift of singleness for some kingdom purpose and I need to learn to be content in this? I pray, Lord, for the widows that they would see the freedom they have as the freedom every believer has who's unmarried. It's no different. Once your spouse dies, the covenant of marriage has concluded. So you're free to marry, but only in the Lord. And that means at least two things. That means they have to be a believer, but it also means it has to be your will. There's two people that happen to be believers doesn't mean God is putting them together. We pray, Lord, for the betrothed that are assessing their relationships. Is this who God has for me? Solidify that. Confirm that. Help me to know that I know that I know so that one day when the enemy comes, I'll know that, no, 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 this was God's person for me until death do us part. Lord, you consider the marriage bed holy. You don't consider it dirty. You gave us special pleasure with this special person. May we have an oasis where the enemy wants us to have a desert. May we remember in the decision to get married, we were giving ourselves over to another, to you first and our spouse second. May we remember that our bodies are not our own. May the marriage bed be a powerful assistance in our holiness in a world of sexual brokenness. If we desire to abstain, may we do that by mutual consent for a limited season with a spiritual, not just material or worse, emotional reason. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as we poke at these sensitive subjects that you would prevent us from making mistakes that others who've gone before us who were so 
maybe unwilling to discuss what you are not unblushing to discuss, that we would be preserved where others have fallen into pits based on ignorance or arrogance. May we instead find holiness and joy. May we be a church that honors marriage biblically and keeps the marriage bed pure and undefiled. May we be singles who shine for you and may it all bring you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.